G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Can I ask you a question? How far do you think God should be willing to go to save you? Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff looks into Revelation chapter 8 and explains some of the judgments enacted by the divine hand of God. In his message, How Far Should God Go? The people of John's day, they're asking the same questions a lot of us ask today. God, do you see what's going on in my life? God, do you see that evil's running rampant? God, is there no justice on planet Earth? is today with Jeff Vines. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. Let me tell you a little bit about that because it's going to be rapid fire. I've had all the caffeine and sugar backstage that I needed. Uh, we've got a lot to do and in a short amount of time. And I talk fast anyway, being from the South. So uh, don't get too disappointed. Just stay with me. And in the end, it all comes out. But we're, we're in a book, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it's a book where God sends visions to one of the disciples who became an apostle, the apostle John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, we know a lot historically about this book. It was written around 72 AD, and it started to circulate to encourage the Christ followers because we're talking about a time when Christ followers were being uh, severely abused and oppressed because they would not worship the Roman emperor. Instead, they were exclusive. They worshiped the one God, and they believed in Jesus Christ and the work he came to do on planet earth. And so John writes this as he sees these visions and the visions are meant to encourage the people of John's day to stay the course. But they're asking the same questions a lot of us ask today. God, do you see what's going on in my life? God, do you see that evil's running rampant? God, is there no justice on planet earth? Are you just going to sit up there on your hands and do nothing? When are we going to be rescued and redeemed? And so the book of Revelation then becomes a book of apocalyptic literature. That's a, that's a type of literature where you use signs and symbols to communicate. And in the case of Revelation, you're communicating the types of events that are going to occur on planet Earth from the time Jesus establishes kingdom until the time he returns. So symbolically, the number seven represents all of human history. So you've got three and a half years, symbolically speaking, between The Old Testament, the creation, and the time Jesus comes and is baptized and accepts his messianic call, and then he establishes his kingdom, and then when he returns, that's represented by three and a half years as well, the types of events, the types of things that will happen during the time Jesus established the church and up until the time he comes, and the Bible calls that the day of the Lord, in which the promises God has made to his people all become a reality. Now, I want to remind you of something. The first thing we saw, we saw seven seals. And those seals were open, and it also described the types of events that are going to happen on planet Earth between the time Jesus establishes kingdom until the time he returns. But did you notice, when we opened the sixth seal, the language was unique. We watched as there was an earthquake, and the sun turned black, and the stars fell from the sky, and the heavens receded like a scroll, and every 
mountain and island, they were removed from their place. And the mountains and the rocks began to fall. And then verse 17 told us that the wrath of the Lamb has come for the great day of his wrath or the great day of their wrath. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has come and who can stand it? Now, isn't it interesting? That looks incredibly a lot like second coming language to me. This is what happens on the day of the Lord. The sky rolls back, receives like a scroll. That's the end of time. That's the end of time as we know it. And the institution and establishment of the kingdom Christ came to bring. Where the hearts of his people and all their desires become a reality. Now the point is, if that's the second coming, why does the book of Revelation keep going? Because it's apocalyptic literature and it's written in a cyclical approach. We said this the first time we studied the first day. We said that apocalyptic literature works like this. The writer will have a vision and there will be signs and symbols placed on the stage to communicate the types of events that will occur between the time Jesus established his kingdom until the time he returns. And then he will wipe the stage clean and start all over again to give you another vision of the types of events that will occur from the time Jesus establishes his kingdom until the time he returns. So that's why you're going to see the second coming six times in the book of Revelation. Because they show you the vision, they wipe the stage, new metaphors, new signs and symbols to communicate a similar message in a different way. So now here we are, you ready? Rapid fire, we come to the bowls of wrath. Again, designed to tell us what are the types of events we should expect to see on planet earth from the time Jesus established his kingdom until the time of the second coming, in response to the cries and the prayers of his people, is there no justice in the world? Why does evil run rampant? When will be the day of redemption? And so, John sees something special. It starts in verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people and on the golden altar in front of the throne. Now this is imagery right out of the Old Testament. Twice daily, a golden pan suspended on a rope was used to transport fiery coals from the brazen altar to the altar of incense. And then the smoke would rise, representing the prayers of God's people to God. Now if Revelation teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that when we pray, God moves. That when you pray, God hears. And he always responds. James 5, 16, 16 says what? The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It releases the divine energy of God. We pray, our prayers matter, God moves. He may not move exactly the way you think he ought to. He may not respond to your prayer exactly the way you think he should. But the Bible tells us when you pray, God always moves in response. Now here's what happens. His response to the prayers of the saints in the first bowl of wrath is that he takes the censer according to the story and now it's emptied of its incense because it has risen as smoke to, as a prayer of the saints toward heaven and he fills it with fire from the altar and then he takes that fire and he hurls it down to the earth. So in response to the prayers of God's people, he sends judgment upon the earth. Now before you judge the judgment of God, Make sure you understand what's happening here. It's truly remarkable how significantly similar to the plagues of Egypt these bowls of wrath are. Remember what God was doing through the plagues in the Old Testament. He was trying to get the Egyptians and Pharaoh to stop persecuting his people, enslaving them, and to repent and turn from their wicked ways. So in the plagues of Egypt, you see hell and fire in Exodus chapter 8. Verse 7, you got all this hail and fire 
And you've got darkness in chapter 8, verse 12, along with locusts in chapter 9, verse 3. So John sees a vision of these trumpets blowing and God responding to the prayers of his people. And the first trumpet he sees is hail and fire mixed with blood. And notice what it touches. It's thrown to the earth, the Bible tells us. And a third of the trees and grass of the field are impacted. Now, forget about what you think when you see the ball of fire coming down to planet earth and touching the vegetation. Think about what John would think about. And the first thing that would strike his mind is the fourth plague of Egypt, the corruption of the land and vegetation in God's effort to get Pharaoh's attention. God, in the mind of John, is thinking, how can I convince Pharaoh to repent and turn from his wicked way and to stop persecuting my people? So he touches something that is precious to the people of Pharaoh's day and precious to every culture and every generation. That is, one-third of the land and vegetation is destroyed. One-third does not mean literally one-third. Remember, we're in apocalyptic literature. It means a significant, partial destruction, but not complete destruction. It means enough to get man's attention, but not enough to destroy him. Now, look up, take a pause here for a moment. Got a lot to cover. When John sees these calamities coming on planet Earth, it finally dawns on him. He has seen calamities in the past as God's abandonment of his people. But John is starting to learn that God often sends calamities on planet earth to spurn repentance. To get man's attention, to turn from their wicked way and stop persecuting the people of God. Now you think about this. Uh, We have famous sayings like, there are no atheists in foxholes. It's amazing how you may forget God and be apathetic toward God until you start the journey toward death. And suddenly you start thinking of the finer things. The sense of beyond in you that you know is real. We also have a saying that goes something like this. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. The point I'm making is, when you start praying for people, you should not be surprised if God sends calamity. Because it is the best way to get man's attention to turn from his temporal, wicked way to that which is eternal, that which is everlasting. And so, the other thing is, if you look at planet Earth... Almost from day one, the time Jesus established his kingdom until even in the present day, from acid rain, to forest fires, to pesticides, to damaging insects, to agricultural diseases spread by rats and other rodents, to rainforest regression and waste dumping, and even natural disasters that impact the land and vegetation, you know that our natural habitat is eroding. Any idea that this world is eternal has long been disproved by science and disproved by your physical body as you look in the mirror every day and things keep going south. (laughs) We are in decay and the second law of thermodynamics is in full operation. Now here's what's interesting about theologians. They look at this and they say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this the hand of God or is this simply reaping and sowing? Is this something God does directly through his sovereign power? Does he actually touch the land and vegetation? Or is the demise of land and vegetation something that we simply do ourselves in our misuse of the planet? Are we poor stewards of God's planet as as a result? We are simply reaping what we have sown. You know the principle of reaping and sowing, right? God doesn't have to look down and punish us or the planet every time we do something wrong. That's not the way God works. But he has already put in the created scenario, a cause and effect, a reaping and sowing. And when we live outside of the parameters of God, we reap a natural benefit or ramifications of a harvest that we have sown. So it's not like God sits up in heaven and says, I'm going to get you for that. No, if you live outside of the parameters he gives you, there are natural results, things that happen because 
of the life that we've lived. Wherever you land on that, the truth is that our land is in decay and it screams of temporariness and futility by placing your trust on planet Earth. So that's the first thing he sees. He sees, okay, during the time of Jesus establishes his kingdom till the time he returns, we should expect to see a devastation on the vegetation, the forest, the trees, the land. The question is how much of it is us and how much of it is God allowing these things to happen to get us to catalyze repentance. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff is asking the question, how far should God go? Another instalment in his Revelation series. Let's continue with Pastor Jeff. Second trumpet he sees, suddenly he sees a huge mountain. And it's like a big ball of fire. And this time it's not thrown onto the land, it's thrown onto the sea, the oceans. And he says a third of the ships and a third of the sea. Remember a third is partial, destructive, but not yet final. And He's communicating a message to John that not only will God send or allow calamities on the land as an instrument of justice and judgment and repentance, he'll also send it on the oceans or the seas. He will also touch ocean waters. Again, theologians say, wait a minute, what is reaping and sowing here and what is the sovereign hand of God? Because the maritime calamities on planet earth are too numerous to count. World War II alone saw thousands upon thousands of lives lost. Thousands and thousands of ships are at the bottom of the ocean still today. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost. But it's not new. You go all the way back. A significant part of the Roman, the Greek, and the Assyrian powers suffered great loss on the open waters of the seas and oceans. One-third ships destroyed. One-third living creatures in the sea died. Is this man or is this God? I mean, in reality, how do we blame God for men and their thirst for blood and killing each other on the open waters? And the fact is, how do we blame God for what we're doing to our oceans, our planet, and our seas? Folks, do you realize we dump 14 billion pounds of garbage into the ocean every year? 14 billion pounds of garbage into the ocean every year, most of which is plastic. 640,000 tons of gear is discarded annually into ocean waters, resulting in 136,000 seals, sea lions, and large whales being killed on planet Earth. Over 1 million seabirds and 100,000 sea mammals are killed by pollution every year as well. In fact, in a five-year period from 2010 to 2014, there have been 35 spills of 7 tons and over, resulting in 26,000 tons of oil damage in the open water and sea. The damage to ocean waters, coral, and sea life is indeed catastrophic. War, abuse, negligence, apathy, all of which are not new. They've been going on since the establishment of Christ's kingdom. They will continue to go on until he returns. And the reality is the pollution of the oceans, quite frankly, no one really knows with certainty the complete ramifications on planet Earth and its weather patterns. We just don't know. Again, what is reaping and sowing, what we're doing to ourselves, and how much is the judgment of God sending this kind of calamity so that we would repent and realize you cannot put your trust in planet Earth. You better put it in something that is far beyond temporary, that which is eternal. Besides that, what about the natural disasters? It's hard to fathom that they don't come from God in some way. And then you think of 2004, the tsunami that struck uh, Asia, 230,000 deaths, 230,000 deaths, 45,000 people still missing, 125,000 people injured, 1,690,000 people displaced from their homes, and the economic cost was somewhere around $10 billion. Contrastingly, the recent Japan tsunami in 2011 
although only, and I say this respectfully, only 18,000 deaths, the economic cost was somewhere around $235 billion. Again, this is not new to us. Every generation has experienced death and destruction and great economic costs connected to ocean waters. Earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, and floods and hurricanes have been happening since Jesus established his kingdom and before and will continue to happen for the second coming of Christ. And according to the scripture and the vision that John sees, the reason they come has to do with one, stop persecuting the people of God, and two, don't put your faith and trust in what is temporary. Repent, turn from your wicked way and your self-sufficiency, and turn to God. Only he is eternal, and only he builds a kingdom that is not shakable. And then the third trumpet comes. There's a star that falls from heaven, and it's burning like a torch now. So we've got a mountain, a fireball, and now a torch. And this time, one-third of the rivers are touched. One-third of the springs of waters are touched. And the name of the star, we're told, is wormwood. That gives it away immediately. Wormwood is simply a bitter, poisonous substance derived from a root that causes drunkenness and eventually death. So you see this going into the clear springs of lakes and drinking water on planet Earth. So the first trumpet, God is going to use vegetation to get man's attention. Second, he's going to use calamity in ocean waters. Third, he's going to use calamity in the inland waters, the springs, the lakes, the rivers. Now again, try to get out of your American eyes and think about what John was thinking about when he heard this. He would automatically go back to the first plague of Egypt where the waters of the Nile turned into blood. It wasn't just that they turned into blood. It was that that would touch a significant economic source for Egypt. The waters of the Nile contributed significantly to the richness of Egypt. It was the country's greatest single economic resource. And that showed John that God is willing to touch what is most precious to us to get our attention. But again, this is not a new thing. It's not like it's just happening in the latter days. It's been happening since Christ established his kingdom and even before then. Late in the 13th century, England's King Edward warned Londoners about the effects of burning sea coal and dumping waste and waters into the streams. In ancient Rome, in ancient Rome, sewers carried human waste into the Tiber River so that by 312 BC, the rivers were so polluted, they carried horrendous diseases like typhoid and cholera. The number of deaths to this day is still unknown. We have no idea how many people have died all the way back from the first century until now because of the contamination of drinking water. But we do know that today, 842,000 people die every year of drinking-related diseases, water streams. Between 50,000 and 150,000 people die every year of cholera. Between 15,000 and 25,000 people die every year of Bilharzia. And millions and millions of more are sickened or fall ill from water contamination. Now, this is one area where we Americans are not immune, even though you don't know much about it. And you don't know much about it because it's very difficult to find these statistics. Because basically, if I can just be honest, our leaders don't want us to know this. Do you know the Mississippi River carries an estimated 1.5 million metric tons of nitrogen pollution into the Gulf of Mexico every year, creating a dead zone in the Gulf each summer about the size of New Jersey? Do you know that approximately 40%, almost half of the lakes and streams in America are too polluted now for fishing, aquatic life, or swimming? Do you know that each year 1.2 trillion gallons 1.2 trillion trillion gallons every year of untreated sewage and industrial waste is dumped into U.S. water streams. And more than 3 million children under the age of 5 die annually 
from environmental factors. I cannot give you the numbers in the U.S. because they're not available. I'll only tell you that the love of money is the root of all evil. Again, though, what is reaping and sowing, what we do to ourselves in the natural streams, and what is the judgment of God, the divine hand of God, sending calamity to catalyze and spurn repentance? Let's take a pause, because this is where it moves into something that's very, very, uh, let's say, mind-boggling for what God allows, what he does, what man causes by his own activity. Okay, now, the trumpet sounds, and a third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Remember what a third means. Not literally a third, but a significant portion to get your attention, but not bring destruction. Now he says in Revelation 8.13, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair calling in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now here's what we find. The fourth trumpet is a generalization of trumpets five and six. In other words, trumpet four tells us the what, generally speaking, and the what is the lights of the heavens and the atmosphere lose their glimmer. Trumpet five and six tell us how. How do they lose their glimmer? And so we go to trumpet five. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, in my opinion, this is one of the most significant passages, not only in Revelation, but in the Bible. It begins to clear some things up. Notice that the star is now given personhood. It's a personality. Before, the stars were balls of fire and a mountain ablaze. Now we're told that the star is given something and the star is going to do something with it. He's going to have the key to the abyss. Now forget about what you're thinking and go back to John. What is he thinking? First of all, angels don't fall from heaven. Except for one. And who's that? Lucifer. Do you know Lucifer's name means star of the morning? And immediately John would have gone back to Isaiah chapter 14, where it gives a description of what happened, where Satan rebelled against God and said, I will take your throne. I will take your place in the heavens. I will become the God of all gods. And he was thrown out of heaven. And the Bible says, how many angels went with him? One third. How about that? Here we are again. A significant, but not all. And they are thrown down into the pit. And verse 15 of Isaiah 14 says, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, notice what the fallen angel, Lucifer, the star of the morning does. He opens the bottomless pit, the pit of the abyss. He does so because he's permitted to do so. He doesn't do it in and of his own accord. He can only do what God allows him or gives him permission to do. And it appears that God, during the time he established the church, from the time he returns, periodically during human history, there are times he's going to give the evil one permission to unleash demonic forces. This is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, and it always refers to the prison where demonic hordes are incarcerated and the place where the most, most severe torment and isolation occur. Now, just so you don't think I'm just pulling this out of my hat, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So there is a sense in which demonic forces are loosed, but there's also a sense in which they are bound. They don't have free reign. They are restricted to some degree. 
But even the demons are used by God to accomplish his purposes. Because this scripture tells us the fallen angel opens this place. And suddenly smoke arises out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. And an incredible darkness comes over the earth. And then in verse 2, we're told when he opens the abyss, that the smoke rose from it like smoke from that big furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. So now we know how the atmosphere, the sun, the moon, the stars lose their light because of the smoke and the darkness coming out of the demonic place that keeps in prisons and some sort of a restriction for those who have been thrown out of heaven. Now, before you think, man, this is just too much for me to handle, let me help you here. This is apocalyptic literature. It's figurative. Light and darkness are symbols all through the Bible. Light is truth and life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Darkness is death and destruction. This trumpet has spiritual imagery written all over it. Because literally, if the sun, moon, and stars lost a third of their light, that would be the end of this planet. If they lost a significant amount of light, if you know anything about science, you know that just can't happen. It would be the end, but this is not the end. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're halfway through Pastor Jeff's message called How Far Should God Go? You can hear the remainder next time. In the meantime, to hear more from Pastor Jeff, Head to our website, that's vision.org.au, and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.